our New Year's resolution will be to learn how to clap. <laughs> That's the number one on my list, so we will learn to be a little bit more excited in our clapping, more together in that, but other than that, I think we're doing pretty well. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to continue our study of Matthew, and I want you to know as we get started here today that we're getting close to the end. I know you sit there and you sing Matthew 20. We only got eight chapters left. I don't know how long that'll take us, but we're getting close to the end. We're actually moving very close to the, to the last week of the life of Christ where he'll spend, we'll look at the last eight chapters. We'll cover almost the, the entirety of a week is what it'll cover. So we're, we're moving very close, inching closer to the end of the life of Christ here. And in this passage today, we get a reminder of that. We get a reminder of why Jesus came to the earth. Uh, we get to, he's going to tell the disciples, he's going to show us that he didn't come to create a holiday, but Jesus came to die for sinners. That's the whole reason why he came. So I titled the sermon today, Why Jesus Came. And I want us to read these verses together. Let's stand together. And I'm just going to look at verses 17 through 19. As Jesus gets closer and closer to dying for sinners, he's going to remind the disciples and us, here's the whole reason why I came. He wants us to know that. We need to remember that, that Jesus came for a reason, a purpose, to die for sinners. So let's look at that today. Why Jesus came. And he's again, he's telling the guys this, these disciples this, a good week, if not longer, before it actually happens. So, starting in verse 17, and he says, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day... He shall rise again. Here's why Jesus came to the earth. Let's pray together and we'll look at it. Father, we thank you uh, for showing this very clearly. That we don't have to be uh, in the dark about this. We don't have to be curious and wonder and, and give opinions. But we know 100% without a doubt why you sent your son into the world. And this is the gospel. This is what we preach. And we need to know this for sure. That Jesus didn't come into the world to bring world peace. He didn't come to the world to be, a, be about social justice. He didn't come to, to give us health and wealth and, and prosperity. He came to save sinners. So God, help us to preach that today. Help us to make that very clear. That this is, was His purpose. And this ought to be the purpose of the church. To preach the gospel. That Jesus came to save sinners. So God, help us to do that today. Help me as I preach it. Help those who are listening to have open ears and open hearts and open minds to receive this. May your spirit move in and amongst us today. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We know that Jesus coming into the world was an unparalleled event. We know that it was the dividing event of all of history. That history and, and even time was split uh, on the birth of Jesus Christ. Him coming into the world. We know that when He came into the world, that it was a, an unbelievable scene on, in the fields of, of Bethlehem. That it was, a, it was a light and sound show unlike the world has ever seen. With angels and songs and, and stars shining. It, it was like all heaven broke loose on that day when Jesus Jesus came into the world. We know that it was a, a, such an amazing event, his, the day that He came into the world, that we still celebrate it 2,000 years after it happened. 
That we just spent a month and we're here today still with, with lights and, and presents and all that we're doing celebrating that Jesus come into the world. We know that He did come. We know how He came of a virgin. We know where He came in Bethlehem. So today I want to ask the most important question of all. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus leave heaven and come to earth? Why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven to come to the gore of earth? Why did Jesus leave the throne of heaven and come to a cradle here on earth? Why did He give up the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth? Why on earth did He make such a drastic move to come down from the heights of heaven to the depths of this old, dirty, sinful earth? Why did He do that? That's the question. We have to answer that. And we don't have to guess on what the answer is. The Bible is very clear on why Jesus came. The angel said it. Matthew one twenty one, And she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. John the Baptist said it in John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God which comes to take away the sins of the world. That's why I came. And we get it even from the mouth of Jesus. We need to let Him speak for Himself. When everybody else is trying to tell us why Jesus came, let's let Jesus tell us why He came. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. This is why He came. It couldn't be any clearer why Jesus came into the world. It couldn't be any clearer why Christmas is, is such a big deal. We don't just leave Jesus in the cradle. I think Satan would be very, 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 very happy if we just left Jesus as a, as a cute little cuddly baby in a cradle and we just left Him there. He would love it if we never went to the cross. To the real reason why Jesus came into the world. It's not just that He came to a cradle. He came to a cross. Those little baby hands would be pierced with nails. Jesus came not to create a holiday, but to die for sinners. And this isn't something that He's been hiding. Jesus came to save, and He wanted to make this very clear. Actually, I want you to follow with me in a couple places. He's repeated this over and over and over. It's not going to get to the end and he goes to the cross and the disciples are going to be like, we never saw this coming. He never told us this. And then turn with me just for a second. Matthew 16, verse 21. Matthew 16. It says, and from that time forth began Jesus. And it's not just one time that he's going to do this. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. He told them there in Matthew 16. He says, here it is. Here's why I'm, uh, I'm here. Here's where, what we're going to go do. And I can turn you over to Matthew 17. You say, Josh, prove this to us. Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they're going to kill Him. And on the third day, He'll rise again. And they were exceedingly sorry. He kept telling them over and over and over and over, here's why I came. Here's where I'm going. Here's what we're going to do. This isn't about glory. This isn't about crowns. This isn't about throne. This isn't even about a kingdom here on earth for you guys to set up right now. This is about me going to die for sinners. But they repeatedly missed the point. 
I mean, we, we, if you go back to Matthew 20, they refused to, to, to accept this because they wanted greatness. We've been studying it and, and they asked who will be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, I'll show you who'll be great. Then later on they said, well, who's going to be first in the kingdom in, in Matthew 19? And Jesus said, I, I want to show you that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You've got all this stuff mixed up. You're missing the whole point of why I'm here. Later on in Matthew 20, verse 20, they get their moms to come and say, uh, my boys want a place in the kingdom. They keep missing why he came. They don't want to accept it. They, they, they wanted to be first. They wanted glory. They wanted greatness. They wanted thrones and power and riches. And they had the wrong idea. So Jesus here in this passage has to remind them again for the third time. Here's why I'm here. One more time and I think it's the last time he reminds them. Here's why I came. Here's what I'm going to do. You guys need to know this. And I think we need to be reminded of that today, that we need to stay focused on what really matters in the world. That we don't need to be on all these issues that all the other churches and preachers are telling us to get focused on. You need to be over here doing this and over here doing this. No, we need to be refocused on really what matters, why Jesus came into the world. Amen. So I want to show you that today. Let, let's look at why Jesus came. And I want to show you first of all, I'm breaking these three verses up into three points. I think it's interesting that these three verses are basically one long running sentence. But I want to show you three points as we work our way through this. I want to show you first of all, the path he will walk. And again, these, these are him telling what, what's going to happen. So I want to show you the path that he's going to walk. Starting in verse 17, it says, look there, he, he's walking on a path. And he's Jesus and Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Verse 18. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. So just to make sure you guys are paying attention, what direction are they going? Up. They're going up to Jerusalem. That's the direction that they're walking. They're, that's the path that he's on. And you need to understand this because it's a journey up. Anywhere in the, in the Israel area, Jerusalem is high. And anywhere you go for, uh, up, you'd have to go up to Jerusalem. And just to give you a couple things here, Jesus had been on with his disciples the Jordan River area, which is 15 feet below the sea level. And Jerusalem is 2,400 feet above sea level. So he had to make a trip up to Jerusalem. I know that's a little geography that you guys don't care much about, but the, the Jordan River is the lowest point on earth. And they're making a probably a 15, 25 mile, mile, mile trip up to Jerusalem. It's, it's a very steep climb up to Jerusalem. You say, why are they going up to Jerusalem? They're beginning their journey to Passover. Passover would be like their Easter. It, it's You guys know how Easter works for us. It's the one time a year when everybody comes to church. I mean, you look around the day and everybody was here last week. It was Christmas and everybody makes their trek and make, makes their, their journey to church. And, and then with some people, we don't see again until Easter. When that, that next time of year, when everybody starts making their journey to, to church again, well, they had three times a year that they made their trek up to Jerusalem and Passover was one of those times. And as they walked, it was this pilgrimage that they would make and they would sing. Uh, this is interesting for those who come on Wednesday night. They would sing. We know what they're singing. As they go, they sing. 
And they sing Psalms 120 through 134. So they're going up to Jerusalem. He's going with his disciples and he's got, he's got other people that are going to join in with him as he goes. And they're all walking and they're all singing and they're all looking forward to going to Jerusalem. I, I think that's interesting. And then we get to the pace that he's walking. That's not a point. But I want to show you in Mark 10. This is interesting to me. We have a lot of detail here. Mark, turn with me to Mark 10. We're on the path. I wanted to know the order that they're walking. Because we know who's going. We know where they're going. We know what's on his mind as he's going. We know what they're singing as they're going. I want to know what the order is of how they're walking. Just, just, just to get, to get this in our minds. Again, I'm telling you, they're going uphill to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a high climb. The, the roads are scary and difficult and there's robbers and all these people that could jump out at them and they're carrying everything they own as they walk. And they're, I mean, just, just imagine this with me. And now, Mark 10 verse 32. Watch this. I think this is great. It adds a lot to this. It tells us how they're walking, the order in which they're walking. Verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was way out in front of them. Do you see that? He went before them. He's way out. And, and I know that Jesus, if you read it, it usually as they, as they walked, he would talk and he would teach and they'd be right there together. But here, for some reason, as, the, as he's going up to, for the last time to Jerusalem, Jesus is way out in front of them. Jesus is up ahead of them. Jesus is setting the pace. Jesus is moving faster than them. Jesus has a little, little pep in his step that they don't have. You say, well, where are they at? Watch this. He's out in front and the disciples, where are they? And they followed. You see that? They, it says, and Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. So they're hanging back. They're scared to death. Jesus is way out front and the disciples are way back and, and they're lagging behind. They're afraid. They're unsure. They know what could take place when they get to Jerusalem. They know that there's enemies there. They know that there's hostility there. They have no idea why He's running there and they're lagging behind. They don't want to go. They're scared to death. They were in the back. You say, well, what's the meaning of this? Josh, why are you telling these insignificant little details to us? That Jesus is out front and they're way behind and, and they're shaking in their, not in their boots, they're shaking in their sandals. They're scared. They're, and that's what the word there says. And, and they were afraid. It's the Greek word phobia. They're scared to death. They're back behind. Jesus is out front. That's the path that they're walking. You say, why is this important? It's important because Jesus knows exactly what's coming. He knows he's walking into a hornet's nest. He knows, and get this, he's always known what's up ahead. He's lived this moment a thousand times in his mind. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's going to happen before Judas knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen before the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows what's going to happen before they know what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen before Pilate even says what's going to happen. 
He knows what's going to happen before they even put Him on a cross. He knows everything that's going to take place. He knows He's not going for glory. He's going for a sacrifice. He knows He's not going to sacrifice a lamb. He is the lamb. He knows these things. He knows He's not going to be first. He's going to be last. He knows. He's walking to the cross to be a Passover lamb. And He's not lagging behind scared. He's determined. He's resolute. His face is set. Isaiah 50 says that I have set my face like a flint. He's walking fast. He's upped his pace. He's ready to go. He is, he is like, he's laser beam focused. I mean, he, he, he's, he knows where he's going. He knows why he's going. He knows what's going to happen when he gets there. And, he, and he's not, he's not being, he's not having somebody drag him to the cross. He's running to the cross. This is an amazing thing to me. Alexander McLaren said this. He has a fixed purpose on his face. And he has a haste in his stride. He's not reluctant. He's not hesitant. He's not dragging his feet. He is a Savior going triumphantly to the cross. He's a commander leading his army. And he's out front and the disciples are in the back. This is heroic of Jesus Christ. There has never been anyone more heroic than Jesus Christ. You know what heroism is? When you're facing the greatest danger. And you set your face and you go and you face it anyway. And Jesus did that knowing exactly what's to come. And He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Let's go up. Look back at Matthew 20. I love what He says. Verse 18. He says, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. I know what's coming and I'm going right into it. We don't have a reluctant Savior. We have a willing Savior. No man took his life, but he laid it down willingly. That's pretty good. There's no more heroic or bravery that can be found in anyone in the world than Jesus Christ. And this shows us, and I'll move on from this point, How we must follow God's will. He knew what he was sent to do. And he was doing it at a fast pace. He was doing it out front. He was doing it without fear. He was doing it and saying, I know what I have to face. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm called to do. I know. And I'm I'm setting my face like a flint. And I'm throwing my hands back like a runner going to the finish line. I'm not going to end this slow. I'm going to set out in front of everybody and finish this race strong. Man, that's how we ought to face life. In the morning when you get up and you have to go to work, get out in front of everybody and say, I know what God's called me to do and I know where He's called me to do it and I'm setting my face like a flint. That's what we ought to be. I know what God said. I know what God's commanded me and I'm going to go do it. I like that. I'll tell you another thing it tells us. we got to follow God's will like this. we got to have laser focus on God's will. I want that as a church that I know what God's called us to do here. And I'm laser focused on it. I'm out front. I'm not, I'm not lagging behind to wait and see what everybody else wants us to do. We know what God's called us to do here. Preach the word. We'll do it. You say, well, people don't want to hear it. You might want to back off on that and you might want to slow down on that and you want to, no, 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 we're not going to be the, the little scared people in the back. 
We've got to be out front on this. We know what God said. We know what God's commanded. And we're going to do it at a fast pace. Out front. Let me give you another one. We've got to follow God's will like Jesus. And we must face dangerous days like Jesus. This is a good application. Do you know what's coming in 2021? People think, oh, 2020 is going to be over. 2021 has to be better, right? I don't know that to be the case. It might get more dangerous in the days ahead than it has been in the past. And for the church and for Christianity, I can almost guarantee you it's going to get more dangerous. And the cowards in the church, the little half-hearted, and I don't want to be mean here, the low-risk Christians, the ones who won't take a stand, the ones who back down as soon as the culture says to back down, the ones that are afraid of cancel culture, the ones that are afraid of being called a name, the ones that are afraid of the danger and the outcast and the persecution and whatever may come in the future, the ones that are afraid will not weather the storm ahead. The only ones that will weather the storm ahead. The only Christians that will weather the storm of cancel culture. The only Christians that will weather the storm of persecution and trials and tribulation are the Christians that walk as Jesus walked out front with courage. This is the path He's called us to walk and we must walk as He walked facing it head on. The greatest Christians who have ever lived walked as Jesus walked. Out front, ahead of everybody else. I'll face the persecution. I'll face whatever it is the world's going to throw at us. And we do it with our face set like a flint. That's the path that we're to be on. So that's the pathway that he walked. Let's look at the pain he's going to suffer. Because now he pulls the twelve aside. I think he sees that they're scared to death. <laughs> and he kind of slows down. He might have been out front, you know, just, just setting the pace. I do that with my kids when we go walking. I set the pace, man. Turn around and they're, they're picking daisies. What are you guys doing? You know, they just get, get easily distracted. We're here to work out. Let's set the pace, you know, get the arms pumping. Now, you know me, I'll, I'll take off. Kids behind me, Steph with a stroller. What are y'all doing? Turn around, they're, they're, they're a mile behind me. Maybe Jesus was out in front and he turned around and he's like, where's Peter and John at? And they're back there picking daisies. They're back there shaking in their, in their sandals. So he kind of slows down. That's who Jesus is. And he pulls them aside. Look what it says. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the disciples apart in the way, pulled them aside, away from the crowd that had been gathering with them, because he has something to say to them. He has some hard truths to tell them. Truths that he couldn't share with everybody. So he pulls the twelve aside and he says, I've got some truths that are hard to swallow. You guys ain't going to like what you're going to hear. He didn't look at them and say, perk up boys, everything's going to be great there. He says, guys, here's what's going to happen. And he didn't tell the rest of the crowd these things. I think if he told the rest of the crowd these things, that they would have been, would have been discouraged, and maybe they would have left and went back home. If that's what's going to happen, we're not going. 
But he sets the stronger ones aside, the 12, and he says, here, I'm going to let you guys in on what's going to happen when we get there. And he may have been whispering to them as they walked, here, guys, this is what's going to happen. And everybody else is sitting there saying, I wonder why he's not telling us this. Because Jesus knows this. This is a very pastoral, pastoral approach. There are some people that can't handle certain truths. Not yet, anyway. And there's some people that can handle it. There's some people that can carry it. There's some people that, that, that can grasp it. And, and this truth of what's going to happen when he gets there, it was hard even for the disciples to handle. So how do, you, how do you think the rest of the crowd would have handled it? So he pulls them aside and he says, I want to get, take you guys into deeper waters. Because there's, there's some, and we need to do this in church as, as pastors, there's some places that not everybody can go. There's deeper waters that some people can't swim in just yet. So you have to carry them along very slowly. I've got, again, back to my kids. I've got kids that can swim. I've got kids that can't swim. I'm not going to take little Emma and just go to Cookie's house and throw her in the deep end of the pool and say, go for it. She can't swim. She's not ready for that. But I can grab Isaiah, boy, and I can pick him up and throw him in there, and he's going to swim like a fish. He's ready for that. It takes discernment to know who can handle what. Jesus knows his 12 can handle it, and he knows the crowd can't handle it. And there's certain truths, even when a pastor preaches, that he says, okay, I, this would be hard for some to swallow. And I need to bring them along slowly. But there's some out there that I can pull to the side, and I can take to my office, or I can take to Starbucks, and I can sit them down, and I can say, we're going to take this a little bit deeper because you can handle it. It takes discernment to know that. And Jesus has, has this discernment. He knows that, that some truths will discourage and confuse some, but he'll encourage and comfort others. I don't know if you guys care about that, but that's, that's a very practical point to this. Amen. Jesus knows how to handle his own sheep. And watch this. Then he gives details. And these details is, is here's what's going to happen, guys. Here's why we're going. Here's what's coming. I want you guys to get ready. And I think he's doing it to encourage them. I think he's doing it to comfort them, to, to get them ready. I think that once they see that he knows exactly what's going to happen before it happens, that when it happens, they'll know it was all planned. It wasn't out of the will of God. So Jesus tells them what's going to happen before it happens. Only God can know these details. You look at the details. Only God tells the story before the story even happens. He's not, he's not going to be responding to what happens during the final week. He's already determined what will happen before it even happens. This, this is good news. That whole last week of his life, when all these things will happen, just as he says they will happen, none of it caught him off guard and none of it surprised him. Not one thing. He's been telling them this for months. He planned this before the foundation of the world so everything is going to happen exactly as He planned it to happen. Now let me comfort you a little bit in that. It's not just this final week that has been determined by God before the foundations of the world. It's our own lives that we live today. Do you think God was caught off guard by 2020? Or do you think he knew exactly what was going to happen before it happened because he had already written the story before the story happened? 
So don't you sit there and think, oh no, everything's out of control. And that's what he's wanting them to know. Everything's not out of control. Everything's under complete control. I'm going to tell you what happens before it happens. Jesus knows, that, that Jesus knows the future perfectly ought to comfort every single one of us. I think this is a flash of deity that he knows everything before it even happens. So here's the details. And again, I've already read to you Matthew 16 and Matthew 17 to show you that he brought them along. Matthew 16, he gave them a little bit of detail. Matthew 17, he gave them a little bit more detail. And in Matthew 20 here, he gives them the full detail before it happens in Matthew 25, 26, 27. So here he gives a little bit more detail. And here's what he says. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be. Here it happens. I'm going to give you three, three little sub-points here of what's going to take place when he gets there. You guys ready for this? He's going to be turned over. He's going to be tried, and he's going to be tortured. So he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over, I'm going to be tried, and then I'm going to be tortured. Look at it. The Son of Man shall be betrayed under, under the chief priests and under the scribes. The Son of Man shall be, the word betrayed there is, I'll be turned over. This is talking about the betrayal by Judas. And Judas is standing right there with him. He's pulled the twelve aside and Judas is with him and he says, I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over for money. And Judas is sitting there right with him. Can you imagine the suffering of this? that one of his very own stabbed him in the back. That's the ugly sin of betrayal. That one you trust and the one that you depend on is the one that turns you into the authorities. I want to add this just as a, as a sidebar. <clears throat> Friends don't stab you in the back. Friends defend you behind your back. Amen. And Judas stabbed him in the back as soon as he got a chance. As soon as things started getting bad, Judas said, I'm going to take the money and run. And he turned them over to who? And I'll say this, nothing hurts like somebody turning their back on you. Amen. And he handed Jesus over, and Jesus said, I'll be handed over, and then I'll be tried. Look what it says there. He's handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. Jesus will be tried three times by the Jews. It'll start, with again, with the religious, the chief priests here, the high priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of the day. They'll try him three different times with trumped-up charges saying that he is he's claiming to, to be the Son of God. They're charging him with blasphemy, that he is saying he's God in the flesh. And he's not guilty. He's, he's, I would say he's guilty of that because he is the Son of God. So they say, that here, here's the claim, here's what he's doing, and they find him guilty and condemn him to death. It says that there. He's handed over, and they'll have three different trials, and they'll come up with a verdict of he's guilty of calling himself God. And then they hand him over, look in verse 19, to the Gentiles. They hand him over for three more trials by the Romans. So it goes for three trials by the religious of the day and hands him over to the authorities, the Roman authorities, the government. And they do three more trials. One before Pilate. Where Pilate didn't want to condemn him. They did a full-on investigation of Jesus' life to see if he'd done anything wrong. And they couldn't find anything. And Pilate said, I find no fault in this man whatsoever. 
Couldn't find a thing that he'd done wrong. They brought in witnesses. Have you ever seen Jesus do anything wrong? Nope. Have you ever seen Jesus do anything wrong? Nope. Has he paid his taxes? Yeah. Has he done this? Yeah. There's a full-on Mueller investigation on Jesus. And they found nothing. At the end of the day, Paul said, I ain't got nothing on him. Not one thing. Nothing. And then he looks at Jesus and said, do you know that they're calling you the king of the Jews? Jesus silent. Do you know what, what I can do to you? Silence. Like a sheep before his shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. You say, well, what was the significance of that? Most people standing before a man who could put you to death would be begging for their life. I didn't do anything. Please, no. Pilate had people coming before him one after the other pleading for mercy. Please, please, please don't, don't kill me. Don't send me to jail. I didn't do anything wrong. Please, please, please. And Jesus didn't beg one time. Jesus is not reluctantly going to the cross. He's going willingly. And then Pilate says, okay, you're guilty. Wanted to hand over a criminal, but they wouldn't have it. So they delivered him to the Gentiles, to the, to the authorities, to the government. And here's what they do to him. Here's his punishment. There's three things. They mock him. This is the torture. I said they turned him in, they tried him, and then they tortured him. Jesus is telling the disciples, here's what's going to happen. One of you guys is going to turn me in. And then they're going to try me. And then they're going to torture me. This is hard to hear, wouldn't it be? Look what it says. They're going to mock him. They're going to taunt him. Make fun of him. Spit on him. I think the spit is, Mark 10 says they spit in his face. It's the most disgusting, reprehensible thing that anybody can do to another person. And they spit in his face. They made fun of him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and dressed him in purple. They would kneel down and bow before him and make fun of him. Hail the king of the Jews, they would say. Then they would take a reed and they would come and hit him on top of the head with it. And they'd say, tell us who did it. You think you're God? Tell us who did that to you. You think you're the king of the Jews? Here's purple. Here's a crown. Here's us bowing down. And they're making fun. And they're spitting. And they're mocking. And they're taunting the Son of God. And Jesus didn't open up His mouth. This is what they're going to do to me, He said. And not only are they going to mock me, it says, but they're going to scourge me. This is death before death. Many criminals would die at this point in the punishment. I don't want to spend a lot of time. You guys know this, but they would take a, a whip, which would be a cat of nine tails that had nine separate things on it. And they would put bone and they would put rock and they would put sharp objects on the end of it. And they would take it and they would flog him with it. They would lay them over top of a rock and they would take that whip and they would hit them 39 times with it. 13 on the chest, 13 on each shoulder, or 13 on the back. And they would just take it and rip it out. They, some people called this, they would fillet them, open them up. 
Many would die during this point. It's a somber thing. It's a somber mood in the church right now. Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do. And he's out front running his way to that. And that's not even the worst of it. Because now he adds a word that he's not added before. And he says, and to crucify him. First time this is mentioned. And the even mentioning of the word crucify, which we use so haphazardly, for them would have been a shocking, horrifying word. It's like us saying, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and they are going to electrocute me in a chair. It was an instrument of torture only used on the worst criminals. It was meant to, and I'm not going to get into the details of crucifixion, but it was meant to bring about the worst suffering that anybody could ever face. Let's punish them so much so that we can prove to everybody else that you shouldn't do what they did. And they would put them out in front of everybody on a hill so that people could walk by and they'd be scared to death to commit a crime because we don't want to ha- want what happened to him to happen to us. And they'd walk by and they'd wag their heads. They'd say, oh, no. And the, the emblem of torture that they would torture them on the cross up to the point of death and they wouldn't let them die. You didn't die until they said die. He said, this is what's going to happen to me. And over and over, and I don't have time to give you all the references, but over and over in the New Testament, the word used for what happened to Jesus on the cross was sufferings with a plural S. That it was beyond anything any of us could have ever imagined. I've heard sermons on what happens on the cross I've, I've, I've seen illustrations, I've watched the movies, and none of it can truly do justice to what happened to Jesus on the cross. He says, this is what's going to happen to me. And the Bible doesn't give us the details because I don't think that was the worst part. I don't think the physical torture was the worst part of what happened to him on the cross. I think it was when God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And when our sin, and it's called the great exchange, that as he was on that cross, suffering, sufferings in our place, tortured in our place, tried in our place, turned over in our place, that all of our sin was placed on his shoulder. And only the Son of God could carry that amount of sin. What a weight that would go upon his shoulders. The weight of my own sin burdens me down. Does it not you? I mean, do you understand the weight? I don't know if we feel that. The weight of our own sin. That's when people get saved. Most of the time they have to feel the weight of their own sin. Of the judgment and damnation and hell that awaits them because of their own sin. People who understand it come walking in a church almost bowed down. That's why the worst of sinners are usually the ones who get saved first. They know their sin. Oh, I'm a sinner. And it just weighs on them unlike anything in the world. They come in almost doubled over over the weight of their sin. you got to feel that. That's why it's so hard for the righteous who think there's something good, 
walking around like they're somebody. That's why at churches like ours, you got to put weight of sin on them. Show them how bad their sin is. So they can feel it. And when they get saved, they walk out like this. It's like the weight, not of the world, but of their sin has been taken off their back. But where did it go? Where did the weight of their sin go? On the back of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? I still feel it today. Because I'm not sinless now that I'm saved. I hope I sin less. But I'm not sinless. And I can go through life and I can get weighed down by it now. I feel it sometimes now. I think creation groans over the sin in creation now. If you've never felt the weight of your sin, maybe you've never been forgiven. That weight that I have was placed on Him. And the Bible says that He carried our sins. Isaiah 53. And He bore our burdens. The weight of my sin went on His shoulders. And that's a lot. But the weight of Brandon's sins went on His shoulders. And the weight of Johnny's sins went on His shoulders. And the weight of Stephanie's sins went on His shoulders. We just go around the room. The weight of the world went on his shoulders. And only the sinless, perfect Son of God could have carried those sins. And in that moment, when he became sin for us, God the Father punished him for our sins and turned his back on him. And the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God in that moment. That was the worst part of the cross. That was unimaginable pain. There was pain of him looking forward to it or dreading it. Do you you understand that? Sometimes what we dread is worse than the actual thing. Jesus spent his whole life saying, my time has not yet come. It's not time yet. Even as a boy at 13, 12 years old when he said, I must be about my father's business, he knew exactly what he was going to do. Could you imagine the weight on him of what's coming? So you got the dread of it that he, that he had to dread even as he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and the dread and the weight of it is weighing on him to the point where he's bleeding from his forehead, sweat bleeding from him. He knows the weight of it, the dread of what's going to happen. You need to understand that. And he still runs to the cross. Out in front of him. You got the dread. You got the physical pain of it. You've got the betrayal of a friend. You got other disciples that are that are spreading out and, and running away. You got the loneliness. You got the mocking. You got the I mean just, just, just keep going through all the things that are taking place there. But the worst of it was the wrath of Almighty God being poured out on His own Son. That's why He came. That's why He came. Old Judas, He turned Him over. Little traitor. You could say the Jews did it. It said that there. The chief priests and the scribes condemned Him to death. You could say the Romans did it. That the government crucified Him. But until we realize that it was us that did it, you really don't know why He came. And this was the only way 
for any of us to be saved. Jesus came to suffer and die. You say, Josh, it's sad hearing here today. Well, it would be sad for the disciples to hear this too, wouldn't it? Their friend, their, their Messiah, the Christ, the one that's been healing and, and, and feeding and, and walking with them and teaching with them and they hear all this. I'm sure they were crushed by it until he added one last little phrase. And that's when we get to the last point, the promise that he makes. Look what he says. I'm going to read it all again. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed under the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles who will mock him and scourge him and crucify him. I drew a line right there. And I, I said, up to this point, if Jesus stopped, can you imagine what the disciples would be thinking? Where would they be without the promise of these last eight words? Amen. Where would any of us be without the promise of these last eight words? <clears throat> Miserable and lost is where we'd be. But here in verse 19, he gives the details this won't be the end, guys. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. It's going to be on my shoulders. And I'm going to be buried. But get this, guys. It won't be over there. I mean, you guys can pep up a little bit now. I know you're somber. I know you're down. I know you're out. I know you're scared to death. And you want to linger back and not go. But let me tell you, that's not the end of the story. On the third day, he even predicts on which day it's going to happen. He says, on the third day, I will rise again. Yeah. It's a promise. He, he predicts his own resurrection. This is a promise of ultimate victory. It's going to look real bad, boys. <laughs> You're going to be sad. It's going to be hard. You're going to be fleeing away. And for three days, you guys are going to have a hard time. But on that third day, I will prevail. I will be victorious. The, this, the one who made himself last will be first on the third day. I will rise again. That's like me looking at some of you guys who are watching a game on TV, which is the only way we can watch it now. And I already know the end. And I'm like, it's going to look real bad in the first quarter, guys. It's going to look real bad in the second quarter, guys. We're going to be down, I mean, we'll be down 10 in the first quarter. We'll be down 20 in the second quarter. And at halftime, you'll be shaking in your Air Jordans. Third quarter, it, it's going to get even worse. Fourth quarter, we're going to start a comeback. And by the end of the fourth quarter, guess what? We win. Wouldn't that change the way you watch the game? Wouldn't that change? I mean, you'd be sitting there saying, <laughs> first quarter, I know, we win. Second quarter, down 20, we win. Halftime, I ain't worried about it. We win. Third quarter, I ain't worried about it. We win. Jesus is trying to encourage them and comfort them. It's going to get real bad. But in the end, we win. Now get this. He made the same promise for when He comes again. Get this, guys. You say, well, that was then. That was comforting to them then. We know all that then. He said, I'm coming again. And before I come again, get this, it's going to get real bad. Are you with me? 
It's going to get real bad. There's going to be an antichrist. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be all kinds of bad things that are going to happen leading up to the end. But in the fourth quarter, I will come again. Revelation 19, I will come again. And I will, I will come back victorious this time. It's coming. Why are we worried now? Oh, Josh, it's the first quarter and we're down. Why are we worried? No, no, we win in the end. What's well, second quarter? It's bad now. Third quarter, oh, it's 2020. It's getting real bad. What are we going to do? Fourth quarter, we win in the end. He made a promise. That's a promise of ultimate turnaround, that we who are last here now will be first in that day. What a promise of triumph, of victory. And I'll close with this. What good's a promise if you don't keep it? It ain't good. Because in the end, he keeps it. I, I, I'll stop at these, these three verses here. But he prophesied it. He predicted it down to every last detail of the, of the entire week with specifics. And it wasn't anything vague at all. <laughs> and now we can all go. You don't have to. We don't have time. I know we don't have a Sunday night service. So we might just want to stick around and do that. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the last week. All of it happened exactly as he said it would happen with 100% accuracy down to every last small little detail. It played out exactly as he said it would happen. He was in total control the entire time. It unfolded perfectly as he said it would. He promised it and he fulfilled it. I love that. And he accomplished it. You say, what did he accomplish? Everything that the Father sent him to do, he did. Why did Jesus come? He came to be a Savior of sinners. To die on a cross for our sins. To make salvation available. And he accomplished every single thing that he came to do. Every bit of it. He said at age 12, I must be about my Father's business. I'm here to do what my father sent me to do. At 12. And then on the cross he said, It is finished. Amen. I've done it. It's over. I've done everything I've been sent to do. And he went into the tomb. And on the third day, the resurrection becomes the divine mission accomplished. Amazing. He did everything as he was sent to do. Amen. And that's why Jesus came. Not to start a holiday, but to die for sinners. So all of us now, as we close, I don't know about you guys, I, I think we should be again Amazed at what Jesus came to do for us. John Flavel said this, and I, I've read this quote last week, and I, I took a screenshot of it, and, and I, I've, I've hung on to it. And this, uh, this old writer said, Oh, what a Christ is my Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I could stop there. The quote's not over. Somebody should, somebody should share this right now, and, 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 Quote that, oh, what a Christ is my Christ. But he goes on to say, the fairest among 10,000. What hath he done 
What hath he suffered for me? What great things hath my Jesus given? And what great things hast he forgiven? Oh, what a Christ is my Christ. If you're going to take anything away from this sermon today, take away John Flavel's words. Oh, what a Christ is my Christ. And we all at the end of this year ought to be on our knees saying, thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for me. That's where we should be. All of us here today. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying for me. Now, I know this, too. That somebody in here is going to miss the whole point of this sermon. I can't, that's obvious. Some, somebody in here is going to be sitting there just, I don't get it. I don't understand it. You say, Josh, how do you know somebody's going to miss the point? Because the, the, the disciples missed the point. Uh, just, just look down there with me and I'll close. Look, look what happens. We'll preach it next week, Matthew 2020. We'll preach Matthew 2020 in, in 2021. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. He said unto her, what do you want? <laughs> that's, that's, that's Southwest Virginia version. What do you want? And she says unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. Them boys still didn't get it. He just looked at him and said, I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me and I'll rise again. And they went back and found their mom in the crowd and said, Mom, will you go ask him? I think he'll jump on to us. Will you go ask him if we can have a seat in his kingdom when we get there? Everything Jesus said in those three verses went right over their head. They only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And they missed it. And there are people in here today this entire thing talking about what Jesus came to do for us went. It just did. Just like them. You're sitting there in your pews thinking Jesus came to give me luxury. Jesus came to give me health. Jesus came to... I mean, Jesus came to give me all these things that we think He came to do. And you miss the whole point that Jesus came to save sinners. And I would urge you today, if, if you're sitting there and you're just now comprehending it, where you can look at it and you can say, he came to die for me. And that's where you have to get. That you go from Jesus came to die for sinners to Jesus came to die for me. And when you can get there, that's when you feel the weight of your sin and you know what it took to save you and you cry out today and you say, please forgive me and save me. But not until you get to that point where it's not Jesus came to save sinners. It's Jesus came to save me. Are you there today? If you are, if you're just now realizing that Jesus came to save me and you want him to be your savior and to forgive you of your sins, then I would urge you today to do exactly what Jesus did and get out front and you run as fast as you can. And you do it today and you do it now. And you call upon the name of the Lord. Because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
You don't wait. You don't lag behind. You don't, you don't be afraid. You get out front and you say, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it today. I know what He wants me to do. I know what He's calling me to do. I know what I must do. And I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Amen. And if you do that today, and you call upon the name of the Lord, He'll save you. Yes. You say, Josh, how do I know He'll save me? Because that's why he came. To save sinners. So I urge you today to call upon the name of the Lord. Whether you're sitting here in a pew today, young, old, online, wherever you are, call upon the name of the Lord. Ask him to forgive you and ask him to save you and he'll do it like that. Because that's why he came. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time and your word today. Uh, For me, it was a blessing to study i know that these things are truths that we all know we've all heard we've all comprehended them we could all repeat them we could all share them but god i think we all need to be reminded of them on a regular basis and thank you for putting these three verses in there for a reminder for us at the end of this year and i pray that you'll use these three verses god please to work in the hearts and the minds of of individuals, first of all, for those who are saved, that we would become even more thankful for what you've done for us. And for those who are unbelievers, God, that today would be the day that they come running to Christ and they're saved. May you use, God, your word to accomplish what you've set it out to do. And we pray, God, that you would watch over everybody in here as they're sitting here contemplating and thinking What do I need to do with this? I pray that you would put it in their hearts to just simply say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.